Hey everyone, this is your boy Captain Hunter coming at you again. Thank you so much for tuning in. Really appreciate the love and support and that you all have been giving. Uh, once again, we are dedicated towards bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thank you for your love, support, patience, and all that kind of stuff. Do me a favor, everyone. If you uh, would just drop me a line or drop me a message, drop me a, a thumbs up, um, uh, a review, whatever platform you listen to this podcast on, just let me know what you think about the show, whether you like it, whether you don't like it, whether you think some things have changed, whether you think we're going in the right direction. I'm really anxious to hear from you, the listener. Uh, the podcast is growing, not a lot of new listeners, so I'm just certainly interested in the old listener opinion, new listener opinion, and all that kind of good stuff. So I'm really, really anxious to hear what you all have to say. So this today's episode is going to be... Uh, it was a Facebook live that we did quite uh, believe back in November of 2020 uh, concerning considering the uh, recent events that happened in Washington DC uh, I thought it was time to uh, release this episode through the audio platform as well so it's myself of course and, and uh, Michael German who is a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice Liberty and National Security He's a former FBI agent. He wrote a book called Disrupt, Discredit, and Divide, How the New FBI Damages Democracy. Uh, he was uh, he wrote another book called Thinking Like a Terrorist, Insights of a Former FBI Agent, Undercover Agent, that was published in 20, uh, 2007. Uh, really, really smart guy. Talks about national, uh, the white supremacist terrorist threat. And that's what we're gonna get into for today's episode. Uh, really, really great episode. Make sure you guys Take listen, take notes, tell your friend, tell your neighbor, share, rate, and subscribe. Also remember to follow me on Instagram, CPTL Hunter, Twitter, CPTL Hunter, Captain Hunter's podcast on all these different platforms, as you all know. Email is CPTLHunter at gmail.com. Please make sure that you rate, subscribe, and share. You can support the podcast through PayPal, Cash App, and Venmo. PayPal is CPT or CAPT, that's Capt Hunter, C A P T H U N T E R, Venmo, Cash App, or CPT L Hunter. So, a uh, dollar episode, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever you can do to support that podcast would really, really be appreciated. Need your love and need your support. The two best ways you can support the podcast to make sure that we keep going is to rate subscribe and share right make sure that all your friends and neighbors and everyone you know who's into podcasts is listening and subscribing and all that kind of thing and of, of course the second way is of course to uh provide that monetary support um so we are going to be providing in the future a, a resource throughout the week midweek encouragement session i was doing that before got a little hectic and strenuous but i really plan to do, go back to that for the year of 2021 going to be releasing some episodes about that very very soon 10 to 15 minute episodes not very long so it's something for you all to be uh encouraged throughout the week to be uplifted uh it is going to be only available to those members who uh who are subscribed to the patreon page or who have pledged and um everything like that so if you want to be have access to this uh, information that we're going to give as part of my life coaching business. Uh, also, if you're looking for a life coach, ding, 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 here I am. I'm your man. Um, so part of that is going to be a podcast, and I really want to 
just encourage everyone. But of course, uh, uh, there's going to be a small fee for that as well to have access to that. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here is the episode with myself and Michael German, uh, national security expert. Uh, once again, this was recorded back in Facebook Live uh, for everyone, anyone who does not know Facebook Live Monday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Every Monday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We have guests and all that kind of good stuff. So uh, once again, myself, Michael German, recorded back in November. But we, we predicted these days and times would be coming. What happened in D.C. and uh, at, the, at the nation's capital. And so here we are. We're going to discuss it. I'm going to release it again. Um, yeah, so we're so we're live right now. But so so yeah, I can't I can't remember uh, them talking about about Ruby Ridge in that particular way, which was very very shocking to me. But you know who knows? I don't know. Yeah. But go ahead. I, I was going to. So I was undercover in the white supremacist movement during Ruby Ridge and Waco, uh, and then. Uh, in the militia movement uh, during the Montana Freeman siege. So it was fascinating to be on both sides of that, right? You know, that I would hear how these white supremacist groups were talking about these incidents and then go back to the office and hear about how law enforcement was talking about these issues. And it was, it was really interesting how they, they both had a perspective that was missing the other perspective. And, uh, uh, you know, it, probably the same with Tim McVeigh, you know, the media immediately dubbed him a militia person rather than a white supremacist, even though he had the Turner Diaries, you know, pages out of the Turner Diaries in his car when he was arrested. And the Turner Diaries is a white supremacist novel, you know, so it, it's weird how they make these divisions and then pretend it's not what it is, you know, kind of funny. Absolutely, absolutely. So we got a couple of viewers here. I want to say hello and thank you to the viewers that have tuned in. So I am here with uh, Mike German, uh, former FBI agent, uh, uh, infiltrated the um, white supremacist groups and everything like that. So once again, I just want to say uh, to to make sure that you acknowledge yourself because we cannot see who's here in the room. So if you want to be acknowledged or if you have a question, uh, make sure that you say hello or wave, wave or you know do something so we know that you're there. Uh, so I'm going to give the floor to, to uh, Mr. Mike German. Thank you so much for being on Captain Hunter's podcast. Uh, would you please introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about your work? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Mike German. I'm a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School. Uh, where I work on uh, public policy issues around law enforcement and intelligence and civil rights. Um, I, I joined the FBI right after graduating from Northwestern Law School in Chicago. Um, and was, it was in 1988 uh, during a hiring phase uh, because of the savings and loan failure crisis. Uh, and and uh, they were hiring a lot of lawyers and accountants at the time to go investigate those frauds. And the first four years of my FBI career in Los Angeles were spent uh, on, on one case, the Lincoln Savings and Loan failure, uh, and was looking for something different after those four years. And uh, 
agent who was a friend of mine said, you know, you have blonde hair and blue eyes. You could be a Nazi in this undercover operation I'm starting. And, uh, and so uh, that started uh, the next 12 years of my career were spent doing one kind of undercover case or another. Um, but it was most known for those two, two cases working uh, neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups in Southern California in the early 90s and then uh, anti-government militia groups in the Pacific Northwest in the later 90s after the Oklahoma City bombing. And then I left the FBI in 2004 because I was concerned about the direction it was going in post 9-11 and ended up joining the ACLU and working in their Washington legislative office for uh, seven years uh, and then transferred over to the Brennan Center where I do more uh, public policy writing uh, uh, in a, in kind of more uh, prospective, looking at future policies and what should be done, where most of my work at, uh, at the ACLU was reacting to whatever Congress or the administration was doing. Very nice. Thank you so much for that. So you have uh, quite the career there from uh, law school to uh, ride. I don't know. Did you ride bikes with these bike with these with these groups or what? what? <laughs> uh, well, only because the FBI wouldn't give me a motorcycle. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, you know, the groups I was with were um, were very clandestine. They didn't like meeting outside in public. I mean, that's one thing that's really changed since then. Really, the only thing that's changed is that they're their activities and their uh, violence is much more public because we have a president who encourages and, and gives uh, oxygen to that uh, element of the movement. And unfortunately, law enforcement has been too lax in enforcing law around that violence. So they feel that they're authorized to engage in this activity, uh, which has made them much more dangerous, I think. And, is more problematic. Mm. So before we dig into that a little bit, let, let's let's get a, give us a story. Give us a story about your your infiltration times. One, one of your best stories. Um, you know, I, I frankly don't like to tell a lot of stories about that. <laughs> I mean, partly because it involves real people, and you know, mm. many of these people have have done their time and gotten out and. You know, crimes of terrorism were looked at very differently in the 90s than they were post 9-11 uh, with this concept of radicalization that once you've uh, got become involved in some political violence that you're somehow always tainted and uh, always have to be watched from then on. Um, you know, there were any number of times where... It, um, I'm trying to think of one that doesn't really implicate anybody. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I would wear basically what amounted to a Sony Walkman uh, tape to some part of my body with wires coming up to my chest, tape microphones uh, so that they were nice and high. And uh, I was in the case with the militia groups and, and the, one of the militia group members uh, basically implied I was an FBI agent to the larger group. And the case agent became very concerned for my safety 
and thought you're trying to think of ways that we could dissuade people from thinking I was an FBI agent. And he said, you know, why don't at the next militia meeting, rip off your shirt, you know, don't wear a wire that day, rip off your shirt and say, I'm not wearing a wire and I challenge everybody else, something like that. And I said, no, I don't think that's a good idea. And we kind of tried some other ideas and he came back to this. I really think it'll work. You know, they'll see you're not wearing a wire and you're willing to do this. So I took off my shirt and I have very pale skin and where the tape would sit on my chest would irritate the skin. So I would constantly have to move it around. So my entire chest and stomach were this patchwork of these red tape marks. I said, yeah, I don't, I don't think this is going to work very well. Uh, so were, were there any other times when you were fearful that you would be found out as, you know, what you were actually? Um, so, you know, the first time a group of white supremacists that you're engaged in a criminal acts with say, we think you're a fed was completely frightening and trying to figure out what I had done wrong and what mistakes I had made. But after I had been there a couple of weeks, they accused everyone of being a fed, uh, including their parents and their little brother. <laughs> and so it sort of was part of just the culture of constantly challenging one another. Not that they weren't worried about an infiltration, they were very much, but uh, you know, I've likened it to our own security measures sometimes, that when you're afraid of everything, you miss what you should actually be afraid of, right? And, and their image of what a, a, an FBI agent infiltrator was, was very different from the way I acted, so they immediately had more trust in me because I wasn't fitting the profile that they had set up. Um, but, but they were always challenging. And I don't think we're ever completely trusting of me. Although after they engaged in some criminal transactions, then it was a little easier to, to bend that off that you could just say, look, if, if, uh, if I was an FBI agent, I would have arrested you three months ago. You know, I wouldn't still be here. And they, calm down about that. But, uh, but there were constant challenges. Very good. So you, you wrote a number of, uh, articles and I had a hard time trying to get through them all <laughs> and I haven't even got your, to your book yet. So I apologize right. for that. I always like yeah. to read people's books. Um, but one of the ones that really caught my attention was uh, white supremacist links to law enforcement are an urgent concern. And that right. one was back in September. Um, and so that's the one I decided to reach out to you about. Um, right. So can you talk to us a little, just a little bit about, you know, why you wrote the article and what you're hoping to accomplish by it? Sure. Uh, so it was that that report, that article was based on a report I wrote called uh, Hidden in Plain Sight, Racism, White Supremacy and Far Right Militancy in Law Enforcement. And it was actually the third in a series that I had written over the last two years. Uh, that were in response to the end of the Obama administration, the Justice Department was uh, advocating for, for broader domestic it, it, terrorism powers, arguing that the reason that they didn't uh, uh, prosecute white supremacists very often was because they didn't have a broad domestic terrorism statute. And since I had done the work since the 1990s, I knew there were plenty of federal statutes that could be used to address white supremacist violence. Um, so I, I wrote the first report called Wrong Priorities on Fighting Terrorism that detailed 
all the federal statutes that were available to domestic terrorism prosecutions and, uh, and how those statutes worked in practice uh, and explained that it was actually policy choices the FBI and Justice Department was making uh, that, that reduced the chances that white supremacist violent would, violence would be prosecuted. Uh, then the second report was fighting far-right violence and hate crimes, which focused on state and local response to hate crime, non-response to hate crimes, I should say. Um, and then uh, in trying to come up with what the issue was, you know, really the issue was that when uh, law enforcement has a tendency to, to win both ways, right? That if they do something really well, everybody pats them on the back and gives them more resources and more authority. And if they do something really poorly, they say, well, it's, it's the tools that are the problem. You got to give me better tools so they get more resources and more authority. So whether they're good or bad, they get more. Um, so the purpose of this last report on actual white supremacy in law enforcement was to highlight that this is something the FBI warns its agents of repeatedly. And unfortunately, the, the way the FBI looks at the issue is that it's a threat to the integrity of FBI investigations rather than a threat to the public that these white supremacist law enforcement officers serve. Uh, so it, it, in my mind, if, if it's important enough for the FBI to warn its own agents about it, it's important enough for the public to be aware of it and to make sure that we're actually enacting national policies to address it and, and address the, the threat they pose to communities. So that's very interesting, and I want to stress that to the audience there that uh, the reports that were released were aimed at, at telling the FBI agents uh, these people compromise your investigations or and or a threat to you, but not so much a threat to the public <laughs> who, right. who they are targeting and all that all that type of thing. So right. I, I, you know, I think that that's really really surprising. What, in your opinion, and this is part of the part of that other uh, article that you did read that I that I also uh, that you wrote that I did read uh, hidden in plain sight racism white supremacy and far right militancy in law enforcement. What do you think is the reason for the lack of effort on the government's part, uh, the policy yeah the policymakers the higher ups to actually do anything about about this problem? Um, I, I think there's a general reticence at the FBI to do. Uh, to aggressively pursue investigations against police officers in the first place, no matter what kind, whether it's just regular corruption, whether it's um, civil rights abuses, uh, you know, there there's a, a a bit of reluctance in pursuing those investigations. Uh, I had in the report, I think it the uh, Pittsburgh newspaper there, the Tribune, I don't remember the name of the newspaper, um, but their primary newspaper there in Pittsburgh did a survey of, uh, uh, of, of Justice Department records around civil rights investigations of police officers, and something like 96% are declined for prosecution, uh, right? So I think that's one, one part of it. I think Structural racism is part of it. I go a lot through in the report through the history of, of racist policing in the United States and 
you know, one of the things that you have to understand is that our nation was founded as a white supremacist project, right? Europeans co colonized the, the so-called new world as a white supremacist project. The idea was that white Europeans were superior to the, the native peoples and therefore had a right to dominate them. Um, and when law enforcement was first formed in this country, it was formed in the nature of slave patrols and other enforcement actions that were designed not to protect the public, but to ensure a, uh, a labor force for the wealthy in this country and to protect their property. So understanding that the laws that police uh, enforced for hundreds of years were white supremacist laws, right? When they were enforcing Jim Crow, they were enforcing white supremacy when they were, you know, there were uh, sundown towns all across the United States where people of color were not allowed to even exist inside a town after sundown. And it was law enforcement who would enforce those laws. And I quote statistics that these towns existed uh, through the 1970s. So this isn't an ancient history sort of problem. Um, and law enforcement in the United States remains overwhelmingly white. You know, particularly the FBI is 83 point something percent white and 80% male. So if you go out and survey white males in the United States, they don't tend to worry about white supremacist violence uh, being a threat to them, right? So when they're looking on the horizon and deciding what to investigate, it just doesn't seem like a priority for them. Um, and I think that inculcates all the way up through uh, management. So they impose policies on the agency that further create institutional barriers to agents who want to pursue these cases. Yeah, that's uh, I often think that one of the biggest problems with <clears throat> with facing this type these types of challenges is, is exactly what you said. Um, that history that you just gave us about uh, you know the founding of the of the nation, the police force, or the slave patrols, and all that, um, you know, that's not taught to police officers in the police academy. So right. when I was you know when I was in the academy in 1995, um, this was not taught. I mean, they taught us about Robert Peel and his principles, which is all good stuff, but right. you, you're not you're not telling us the whole story. Right. And it wasn't until you know a few years later I started doing my own research, start reading some books. Um, and, and start understanding. And, and so I think that if we're going to tackle this, then yeah, we have to tackle it from the history and what we're telling everyone, have this reconciliation with history and say, hey, listen, this is what it was, but we can be something different today. Right. And I think that you're absolutely right as far as the higher ups, as far as them not um, having having that issue, right? We, we, right. We, we Before we got into this, we were talking a little bit about um, the sovereign citizens. Um, and, uh, you, you know, I can remember sitting in classes, uh, the sovereign citizen, and now the instructors are telling us about the sovereign citizens, and I'm having to hear these key words and phrases and trying to parse what they're saying and read between the lines of what they're saying. And I'm thinking to myself, are these guys white supremacists? Why are they not, why are they not telling us this? You know, and not right. all sovereign citizens are, are white supremacists. Right. I but mean, they're, I Right, right, right. So this, this, so so you know, it's this. And there was another thing that I that I that I had as well. Another story is that um, we were talking about uh, gangs, right? You know, Waterbury, uh, and your you have the history of of being Waterbury. Your your father was Waterbury, right, 
Right, exactly. So yeah. I, I did not know that. So this is just right, kind of coincidental yeah. for for anyone out there. Uh, so, <clears throat> so um, we're, we're talking about the gangs in in, in Waterbury. You know, there, of course, at this time there was uh, you know these Hispanic gangs and black gangs and everything. And we also had a problem with Hell's Angels and Outlaws and other motorcycle Ooh. gangs, but this wasn't being addressed right. um, at, the, at the time. So they're only talking about these 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 other white gang. I mean, these other gangs of color, essentially. Right. So then I go up to uh, you know during a break or maybe it was an after class. I said, you know, what's up? How come you're not talking about about you know uh, you know the Diablos and all these other types of gangs? Well, you know, they're they're not as big as a problem. Yeah, they are. <laughs> You're not a big yeah, problem are. for you. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah so I just, uh, and, and that's the thing. I, I mean, if, today, if a white supremacist kills somebody, the FBI might call that an act of, of domestic terrorism. And if they do, that's their number one priority. Uh, domestic terrorism is, is in second place to international terrorism in the counterterrorism umbrella, but counterterrorism is the number one priority. In that case, we'll get a lot of resources and it will look broadly to try to find not just not just to prove that the shooter was a white supremacist who killed somebody for this terroristic purpose, uh, but to find out who their associates are and whether there were other conspirators or they could call it a hate crime. And if they call it a hate crime, <clears throat> that's a civil rights program that drops to the number five priority and out of eight priorities. Uh, and then you, the, the FBI would investigate it as a single incident. They wouldn't look broadly for a group of co-conspirators, whether there was a, a, a huge organization behind that crime. Uh, and the Justice Department's policy is to defer those investigations to state and local police, which would be good State and local police can do great investigations when they choose to, but we know from federal reporting that only 12 and a half percent of police departments acknowledge that hate crimes occur within their jurisdictions. Mm. So it's this federal policy that defers into a black hole, right? We don't know what's happening because those state and locals, most of them don't actually investigate and prosecute these crimes. Uh, or they could call it a gang crime, which would then drop down to the sixth priority in the FBI. Uh, and how they choose to divvy that up makes a big difference in the amount of resources that are devoted in what happens to the intelligence that's gathered from those investigations in painting a picture of what the white supremacist threat is nationwide so that policymakers in Congress or in the Justice Department can actually make strong policies designed to address that violence. So it's so broken up in a way that we can't really get a clear picture of what this threat is. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that's interesting as far as them, uh, you know, their, their priorities and, and, and all that. And it really is very, very disappointing. And I would imagine that in your training presentation on sovereign citizens, they talked about how sovereign citizens often kill police officers. Right, right, right. They absolutely. And that, so by carving that portion away from the white supremacist groups, who, by the way, also kill police officers, it's a way of sort of diverting the gaze from what is the bigger problem. Mm. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Absolutely. And matter of fact, there was a 
they often uh, talk about the the Arkansas. There was an Arkansas deputy chief or something like that, and his right. son was a new police officer, and he was killed by the sovereign citizens. And uh, you know, and I actually met that chief, that deputy chief. I think he's retired at the time, right. but um, but uh, you know, he yeah, he horrible. went around and gave him speeches and everything like that. Yeah, right. yeah, it was definitely horrible, definitely. Right, but but you know, yeah. if you look at the small number that are sovereign citizens, it looks like okay, that that's a manageable problem without having to look at the communities that are terrorized by this much broader population of people who who are of like mind. Uh, that that don't necessarily always target police officers that you could your police managers could then say well you know let's focus on this smaller problem rather than that bigger problem I listened to another podcast um, and it was it was by a number of police officers and um, they were talking about uh, the rise in hate crimes. And they were kind of they they were, and I want to be sensitive to these guys, right? But I, but I was also very annoyed because they were making it seem as if there's not a rise in the number of incidents of hate crimes, uh, of course, against the the public, um, but but they but the FBI and government agencies are increasing or, or opening up the umbrella as to what classifies as a hate crime. And I'm thinking, and, and they're going through these stats about, okay, well, if you compare this to the 1970s, it's only because, uh, uh, you know, um, we've expanded the definition of what a hate crime is. That's why it looks like so much more today than it was in the 1970s, which to me is a ludicrous argument. I mean, <laughs> but but this is the argument that all the police officers are making. So again, here's the point that some people just don't see it as a problem. Right, exactly. And, and try to minimize it when, in, in fact, it, it's fascinating because it's part of the problem that makes it hard to know whether hate crimes are rising or falling is that we don't have good data sets, right? And it tends to be when the media is paying attention to hate crimes, then policymakers have to pay attention to hate crimes. Then the police have to pay attention to hate crimes. And it starts to look like it's going up when it might be more active enforcement. Um, but if you look at it year to year, there's a persistent level of violence that we're not counting, right? So we know that only 12.5% of police departments uh, report hate crimes to the federal government. So that data set that they're talking about is 12% of the whole, right? Right, so, right, right. And, and if you look at that, it's, it's the more progressive areas where, uh, where uh, the police are expected to investigate those crimes. So. If you look at that data and you were a person of color, you would never go to a state like New York or California because that's where all the hate crimes occur. You would go to Alabama and Louisiana and Mississippi where almost no hate crimes occur, according to the federal data. Right? But it's because they're not reporting it. And one of the things I went through in the far right, fighting far right violence and hate crimes report is again, trying to, to look at the, the problems with this Justice Department policy of deferring to state and locals, is that you know if, if you're the mayor of a mid-sized city uh, and you know that other cities aren't reporting hate crimes, do you wanna be the only city that's reporting hate crimes in your state? You know, you're trying to encourage people move, to move to your city. You're trying to encourage multinational corporations to build a factory in your city. You're trying to build business in your city. 
And you know that the three towns that surround you don't report hate crimes. So when your police chief comes in and says, hey, we're going to start reporting hate crimes. We have 50 hate crimes to report. No, I don't want you reporting those hate crimes. You know, let's parse those. Let's look at them harder and say, well, you know, okay, this could be a hate crime, but maybe it maybe it's just a regular assault. Maybe it's just, you know, kids being kids. Maybe, maybe it, you know, and they find ways to, to uh, make it seem less of a problem in their community. And, and so it, it really will take the Justice Department saying that, and it's fascinating of the data sets. So the Justice Department does crime victim surveys and they go out and they find, survey the public and people will tell them what crimes they've been victimized, what types of, of crimes they've been victimized by. And according to those studies, uh, they estimate there are about 230,000 hate crimes a year. Uh, the 12% of police agencies that report to the, to the federal government say there are about 8,000 hate crimes a year. So we go from 230,000 hate crimes down to 8,000. The Justice Department prosecutes 25 hate crimes defendants each year. So there's this huge gap there that isn't being addressed, not by low, you know, between what the police are doing that the feds aren't doing to what nobody is doing, that you have this gap of literally more than 100,000 crimes that aren't being investigated by anyone. Yes, sad. I want to say hello to a couple of people here who have joined the chat, Mar Marlene and Zakia and Lavanda, Chris Casey, uh, Trey Ellen, and to anyone else who's going to watch this. And I do have a couple of questions here. Uh, Chris Casey wants to know, uh, you have an interesting career. He must know my friend, Dr. James Reese. Uh, do you know what Dr. James Reese? Uh, I, I've heard of him, but I don't know him personally. Okay. Um, let's see. Marija, 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 I'm not going to attempt to say your last name, please forgive me, says, uh, hello, a uh, question, is the reluctance because of higher-ups are white supremacists, or is, there this, or is the system never caught up to with the modern world, or that it, did they never want to? The reluctance, uh, I, I would say all of the above. I mean, I, I think there, there are you know, very few actual white supremacists who, who will go to a Ku Klux Klan meeting or some other like-minded groups meetings. Um, but there are certainly more uh, people who are just racist. Uh, and, and then you have a broader category where you have these far-right militant groups that have adopted a tactic of uh, feigning friendship with law enforcement, you know, wearing the Blue Lives Matter patch and and going to uh, uh, Blue Lives Matter uh, rallies. Um, you know, again, when you look at the history of these groups and even the recent history, they kill police officers. So uh, that is, is simply public relations work that these groups are doing. But unfortunately, we're seeing too many law enforcement officers and too many law enforcement agencies uh, falling for that and, and not being as aggressive against these groups as they are against their opponents, um, which is a, a serious problem that unfortunately is making them much more dangerous. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of it is the structural racism that infects all institutions in the United States. And 
because law enforcement and the entire criminal justice system is sort of the tip of the spear and how the government interacts with the public, that's where we see it more, more obviously, right? I mean, I don't think it's an accident that we've known, you know, since I joined law enforcement in the 1980s that, that black and brown people are disproportionately targeted uh, for traffic stops, for searches, for arrests, they're sentenced to longer sentences. Uh, you know, these, these disparities have been persistent for decades. At some point, you have to acknowledge that it's no longer accidental, right? If we know that this is an issue and we're not doing something to, to bring those disparities down, then we're intentionally allowing this uh, 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 discrimination to continue in a system that is on its face supposed to be fair and equal. Mm. So do you think that the Blue Lives Matter uh, uh, people are, are racist or, or, or the, and I have actually invited them to be on the podcast and they blocked me on Twitter, which I think is kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think the labels are hard, right? Because, uh, you know, even in um, these far right militant groups, they'll often, you know, point to a member of their group who's a person of color and say, see, we're not racist. We have a black friend. Uh, uh, but they tend to be, they tend to, when they engage in violence, uh, it, do that hand in glove with white supremacist groups, right? Mm. So we know that the white supremacist groups target the same communities that are disproportionately targeted by law enforcement, right? So law enforcement isn't necessarily as uh, aggressive in policing those crimes because they're targeting the same community that, that the police target. And whether that's because the police are racist or because that's part of the implicit bias that uh, happens or the training that police agencies receive, you know, it's, it's a problem that, that is known and not addressed. So at some point we have to say, you know, we're willing to acknowledge that because there are some racists and some white supremacists in law enforcement, we have to do something about this problem or else we are part of the problem. I wanna be very clear, and I've said this in any other time I've talked about this, that I don't want people of color to uh, to live in fear or to, or, or even white people to, to to live in fear and to think that every anytime a white police officer drives by you, uh, that he's, that he's uh, one of these people, right? Uh, you know, I don't. I don't want to put that put that message out there. Um, in your estimation, from your work, uh, how big of a problem is this, or how small of a problem is it? How many officers? What are there a million officers or something like that in the United States? Yeah. Something like that. In uh, wh what would you say the percentage is, and is there any way to tell? Or you, you know, I, I try to be as empirical as I can be in in doing this kind of analysis. And and the problem is we just have no idea because nobody's looking. Right. We, we, um, there are a number of researchers that, who document the dozens or so cases that that uh, that bubble to the surface and, and result in some kind of public scandal. Uh, but nobody is going deep into these police agencies and, and looking. And of course, we know that that police officers who report their fellow law enforcement officers for, for any kind of misconduct. Uh, uh, whether it's racial or not, don't tend to be treated very well. <laughs> so, yeah. so there's a suppressive 
uh, uh, layer on top of the reporting. Uh, the only thing I can say for certain is that it's a persistent problem because I was warned about this when I was an agent working these cases in the early 90s. Again, in the late 90s, there in uh, uh, a report that came to public awareness through the Freedom of Information Act in 2006 warned about it. And in 2015, uh, the FBI's counterterrorism policy guide uh, leaked to the media, and that also warned about this problem. So if it's a problem that's significant enough for over a 20-year period, the FBI is warning its own agents that it's a problem. I think it's a problem that we have to have a national strategy to address. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. And, you you know, and, and one thing is law enforcement has to be part of that solution. Right. I mean, it can't happen unless law enforcement is on board, number one, acknowledging that it's a problem and two, taking the steps necessary to eradicate it. You mentioned uh, kind of in passing, and I want to kind of dig into this a little bit, the, di the difference between those who actually join a group, the KKK, the Proud Boys, et cetera, and those who are just racist. Uh, right. Can you elaborate about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I think um, people have, uh, it, and even people who claim to be experts in terrorism and, and uh, who, who look at this stuff, see these organizations like the organizations we see in the rest of our lives, right? That in the FBI, the police wanted to know, okay, you know, our organization has a director and then assistant directors and then, you know, this hierarchy. What's the hierarchy of those organizations? And they don't have them in many cases. You know, they intentionally avoid that kind of organization because it creates liabilities for them. Uh, so they have what is uh, a leaderless resistance model where they want to break into small cells and they're much more uh, mission oriented than ideological, right? That they think. The, the world is on a precipice and we want to trigger the race war. So we're going to focus on, you know, how we're going to go bomb this black church. And, you know, like anything, like you wouldn't expect a, a group of Marines to know the geopolitical strategy for, for why we're invading this country, right? They just know that my objective is to hit this beach and secure the beach. And that's kind of the way they think that, you know, our objective is just to do this thing. And if we have to use a, a Mexican gang to help us get the illegal weapons that we'll, we'll need, of course, we'll interact with that Mexican gang or, you know, whatever. It's, it, the, the ideology sort of gets put to the side for the benefit of the mission. So it, they're not... Um, it's not as monolithic as you would imagine. And particularly when you get to these groups that, that try to mask what they really are, they go far out of their way to make sure that they always say they aren't racist, you know? And then when you see them committing violence on the street, they happen to be with an all out neo-Nazi group, you know? It's like, well, you know, for somebody who's not racist, you sure have a lot of racist friends. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that that somehow you're always on the side of racists. And I think that's where uh, the Blue Lives Matter people have to acknowledge that, you know, as we've become a much more partisan society, 
there's there's less space in the middle, right? You're you're on one team or you're on the other. And if you look around on your team and the other people on that team are white supremacist groups and far right militant groups, maybe you should rethink that team a little bit or at least be more careful in how you're promoting your own group to make sure that you're divorced from those elements that that you might disagree with. Uh, Marija has another question. I'm hoping I'm saying your name right there. Uh, I've asked this question before, but do you think having state-only police would help? I guess she wants to have some type of, yeah, I guess uh, no local municipalities, only state-controlled. Um, I think you have just as many problems in the state police. Uh, so so I, I don't think that would be a solution. And I do have some faith in kind of the federalized system that you know, part of the FBI's responsibility is to investigate crimes by state and local police. And, you know, when an FBI agent is out there doing harm, state police will do a better job of investigating whether that person has engaged in criminal conduct than the FBI's Office of Professional Responsibility, right? I trust the state police to make that determination or the local police much more than I would trust the FBI to determine one of their own has has broken the law. So I, I think having multiple uh, different levels is key to accountability. Hmm. It's per, it's pronounced Mar, Mar, Maria, so I apologize uh, for that. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for the question. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, as you what you talked about before this administration giving uh, oxygen to these to these people. Um, we know that in uh, after the election of Obama, uh, there was a spike in in uh, hate groups. You you mentioned that uh, even the even the Obama administration did not do enough to clamp down on uh, these type of hate groups and their infiltration of law enforcement. Uh, and it seems as this, as if this administration is given a full out bullhorn uh, right. to, to, to these people. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And, and why it's dangerous. Um, so when I was doing this work in the 1990s, and I was working on joint terrorism task forces, so state and local law enforcement and other federal agencies worked hand in gloves with us on those cases. Um, the police understood the tactics that the far-right militant groups engaged in, and one of them was to host rallies or marches in places where they knew they had political opposition, right? I mean, these groups weren't gonna go to some very conservative, very white community to hold a rally, they would go to some place that was very diverse and very progressive. And the reason for that was the purpose of it was to draw out political opposition that they could then attack, right? And make it look like, oh, this is just a, a boisterous um, rally, but they're gonna come with picket signs and we're gonna have knives and guns and it's not gonna be a fair fight. Right. So the police understood that tactic. You might remember the Greensboro massacre in the late 80s. Uh, the, you know, in the 90s, when I worked this, the police understood that tactic and understood which group were the instigators. Right. This is a group coming in from outside my community, trying to instigate trouble in my community. You know, we have to let them respect their First Amendment rights to hold a march, but we are not going to let them hurt anybody. 
and we're going to get them out of town as quickly as possible. And if they do hurt anybody or if they bring people who have warrants out against them or who have otherwise engaged in violence, we're going to be ready to address that immediately. Uh, so what I saw after Donald Trump started running for president was you know, making these racist comments that these groups interpreted as support for their viewpoint, or at least support enough that their viewpoint got mainstream media attention, right? A lot of these groups, uh, I, I could call myself the head of the Ku Klux Klan, and, and nobody's going to say I'm not, right? For my, for my region, I'm the Ku Klux Klan head. Nobody's going to say, oh, no, you're not. You have to you have to fill out this questionnaire and join. No, I can just start wearing a Klan robe and and maybe I have no followers. But if the news media comes to me and says, oh, you're the head of the Ku Klux Klan here locally. What do you think about Donald Trump? Now, all of a sudden, I'm getting a message out and I'm getting a following because people are going to be watching the news and say, oh, I didn't even know there was a Ku Klux Klan here in my town. Now I can contact this guy. And, and so it's, it, it's a way of helping these groups expand that was particularly dangerous because as they engaged in public violence at these rallies, law enforcement was not, uh, did not, number one, stop the violence, but number two, didn't even investigate it afterwards. I mean, many of the groups that were engaging in violence in Charlottesville had been at Berkeley before that committing violence, had been in Huntington Beach committing violence at these rallies, had been in other places. And, and Charlottesville was actually about the seventh in a series of these violent protests. And what was happening was the people who committed violence were becoming famous in the movement. Right, they would put video of them committing violence on their uh, on their social media accounts, and that would make them famous in the movement. So, what was it? What it was doing was encouraging more violent people to come to the rallies. You know, when I was doing this in the '90s, the people I was with who were, you know, doing bombings, making bombs, trafficking in machine guns, they wouldn't go to a public rally. Right. They didn't want to be identified because they knew that they were engaged in some serious criminal conspiracies uh, where now today they would say, well, if I can go commit violence at the rally and walk away without charges, that's all fun and games. Right. And, and so it's encouraged a more violent element to come to these rallies, which is why I think we've seen the violence escalating at the rallies. Yeah, and this this I, I often think about. I think it was General Mad Dog Mattis who, to me, gave one of the best uh, statements concerning this president. He said, "You know, this president doesn't even con doesn't even attempt to try to bring the nation together." And I think that that his statement about this man has just been so so spot on. He's not even trying. He, he he's embracing it. If you know. To say the least, he's embracing it. You know, right. not willing to to come out and con and condemn these people outright. You know, you got to pull this guy's teeth and, and all this kind of stuff. Right, and and certainly stoking the divisions that already exist in our society, and, uh, pitting them against one another rather than trying to bridge differences. Absolutely. Uh, so Trey is uh, Trey Allen has got the same question I do. I want to know your thoughts about the 
about the future uh, uh, or of the election. Uh, she's asking, is the FBI gearing up for an incident following the election uh, from white supremacists? Um, so uh, what's, your, what's your thoughts about uh, the election, which is tomorrow? Uh, what's your thoughts about if he loses, wins, et cetera? Uh, so it, it's, it, it's some, you know, obviously we've seen a number of FBI arrests, uh, this group in Michigan that was uh, allegedly planning to, to abduct the governor there, uh, more recent arrests since then. So I, I, I think that they are certainly aware of the issue. Uh, and you know, my only concern would be that they they seem to be focused on this methodology that they developed after I left of these very complex sting operations, uh, rather than looking at the public violence that we're seeing at these protests and identifying the people there uh, and, and taking action against them. It doesn't take a whole lot of law enforcement uh, to send these uh, groups scurrying uh, for the corners of the room again, um, but there has to be persistent law enforcement uh, uh, attention and, and charges being brought against the, the most violent members for the people who are interested in violence to know that it, that it's not free. You're not going to get a get out of jail free card. You're not going to be able to commit violence and, and get away with it for very long. Um, so, uh, you know, they, they certainly could be doing a better job. Um, I think it's hard. It's very, you know, we're very fortunate in this country that, that terrorism and political violence is, is a, a relatively rare problem, right? Um, and you know, when we talk about terrorism in the United States since 9-11, it's amplified in a way beyond what the numbers actually show us, right? We, we know that there are about anywhere from 50 to on a really bad year, 100 deaths associated with something we call terrorism every year. Uh, that's in a country that sees 17,000 homicides a year, right? Half of the violent crime in the United States goes unsolved, including almost 60% of, uh, or I'm sorry, almost 40% of homicides go unsolved in this country. So you're talking about six or 7,000 homicides uh, that we don't solve. So, you know, if we're a country that's big enough to allow 6,000, 7,000 murderers to go free every year, I think that, you know, we can put this problem in context and say, yes, it's a persistent problem. Yes, if they are free to engage in complex conspiracies without uh, enforcement action being targeted, they can do much more dangerous things like the Oklahoma City bombing or 9-11. Um, but you know, we have to recognize that this is something law, traditional law enforcement can handle very effectively. And there are plenty of laws on the books. I mean, one thing that, that has surprised me about these protests and, and we see it in relation to the election is when uh, these groups now, when they come to these things, trying again, trying to do PR uh, that makes them look like they're protective of the community, they'll say, oh, we're just here to provide security, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if you wanna be a security guard in pretty much every state in this nation, you can't just pick up a gun and say you're a security guard. Right. There's a licensing procedure because the state wants to know, number one, you're qualified, that you, you're not a criminal, that you're allowed to possess a firearm, that you know how to use a firearm and that you have insurance. 
and that you understand the laws uh, that are associated with your use of, of any kind of force, right? So there's a long uh, a licensing process. And if you violate that, it comes with civil and criminal penalties. So I don't know why when these militant groups get out there and say they're security, you don't see a police officer walking up and saying, can I see your license, please? And if you don't have it, here's the $500 fine. And if you don't disperse now, it's 30 days in jail, right? You know, I mean, we have laws on the books that are supposed to protect us from exactly this problem. You know, there's a, a group at Georgetown that has put out a report on the anti-paramilitary laws that exist across the United States. Most states have some kind of law that bars paramilitary activity, right? We want our police and our law and our military and our National Guard to do that work. We don't want some group of who knows who just grabbing guns and saying that they're uh, the militia, right? So those laws are very rarely enforced. Um, you know, we, we have to make sure that we're training our law enforcement so they understand how these laws work to protect us so we don't have the problems that we see where, you know, what, what the governor in Virginia said about Charlottesville was, they were afraid the police were outgunned. And that's why they took a, uh, a very light footprint in that event that unfortunately resulted in fatality, but many other injuries as well. You know, and that's not the role of police. Police shouldn't be taking taking the, uh, the sidelines when, when groups are coming in committing violence in our communities. What's your thoughts on the plot to kidnap the Michigan governor? Uh, so I think it's important to, to acknowledge that all we have so far are government allegations. Uh, we haven't seen all the evidence yet. Um, but, you know, typically when I look at these sting operations, uh, you know, there, there are another number of things that, I, uh, that are kind of red flags. One, whether, whether the group had its own weapons, right? Dangerous weapons are, are very easy to come by in this country. So if you have a sting operation that targets somebody whose only weapons come from the government, that tends to tell me that this person was not that dangerous or not that interested in, in doing some harm. Here they had those kind of weapons. Here it appears that the group came up with this plot. It wasn't uh, from the information we have in the indictment, something that a government actor suggested to them. Uh, there are some some issues in the indictment that I are in the complaint that I'm hoping will be addressed. Uh, the FBI says that said that they had four informants involved in the investigation, but detailed the activities of only two. So that's unusual. Uh, number one, to have that many informants in a group, uh, but number two, what were these other two informants doing, and why isn't the government detailing that if, if it's going to acknowledge that they were there. And obviously the issue will be who suggested this plot and who was the driving force behind it. And if it was a government agent, then I have concerns, even if, if, uh, if these people were engaged in some kind of illegality around weapons trafficking or manufacturing explosives or attempting to, uh, you know, the, the government shouldn't be inventing these big plots, uh, to get better headlines. Um, uh, let's see, I'll take a couple of questions here and then I got one more question, I think. Uh, so this is from Lavanda. Uh, she uh, 
considering all the years, let's see, that, uh, uh, considering all the all of your experience and knowledge over the years, do you think that the behaviors and thoughts, beliefs of white supremacists and racists should be considered a mental illness? I think they tried to do that back in the seventies, right? They tried to. Uh, so you'd have to build an awful lot of mental institutions <laughs> if we were going to declare racism uh, uh, a mental illness. Um, you know, I, I think our country struggles with uh, uh, having a frank discussion about racism and white supremacy in our society, and and we all suffer as a result. Um, and, and it was interesting joining these groups because I went into it thinking this is kind of a fringe belief system that's a little twisted and crazy where what they showed me immediately were history books where it was the prominent people of the day who were uh, uh, supporting the ideologies and philosophies and theologies that they hold and, and they accurately pointed to you know, this span of history and said, you know, it's only since the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that, that, that anybody in, in polite society agreed with this idea of a diverse multicultural society, right? Our laws were strictly against it until the Civil Rights Act. And they look at that as a bad experiment that if, if only we hadn't gone in that direction and instead had doubled down on Jim Crow and, and legal white supremacy enforced by law enforcement, everybody would be happier today. You know, and that these are the tropes that you still hear, whether it's that, you know, black people were, be, were, were happy when slavery existed, you know, they were treated well, these kinds of uh, uh, false arguments that, that try to, um, reimagine white supremacy as some uh, beneficial uh, 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 concept that, that was making the world better when it was anything but, and still is anything but. <laughs> yeah, we're all suffering from drapedomania right now. All the yeah. people are. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, she, uh, she continues on with the concerning a lot of their behaviors and thoughts are irrational, bizarre, dangerous. Um, yeah, that that's an interesting point that uh, that I never never really thought about. I actually, you know, the more I read about it, I actually agree with Lavanda that a lot of these people are are just whacked. Um, do you, do you, when you were in these meetings, um, and I've watched some of them on YouTube. Um, uh, do you think did you get the feeling that some of them were not mentally stable, or that they were all rational college educated thinkers and wearing suits and I mean or or just yeah. the, the gamut, the gamut. Of yeah, it, it was all the above. You know, there there were some professional people, business owners, people who had real lives, college educations, and above college, um, and and there were people who were there because they liked to make bombs, and this was a group that let them make bombs. Right? <laughs> you know, you join the Boy Scouts and you start talking about making bombs, they're going to politely show you the door. Here's a group that lets them make bombs, so they're going to gravitate towards that group, you know. Or you just like to get into street fights. Here's a group that will support you in getting into street fights. So it certainly does attract a very dangerous element. Um, but I think it would be a mistake to, to misunderstand how white supremacist ideology is a foundation of the creation of our country, which is why it still has all these systemic impacts because we haven't 
reckoned with that past and really dismantled those structures of, of white hierarchy in the United States. Uh, yeah, so what, I want to get to Maria's question here, but what's your thoughts about that when it comes to statues, comes to Confederate flags, et cetera? Is that part of that structure you're talking about? So, so it's interesting, and, and you know, it's like hearing the argument that it, you know, taking down the statues is erasing history, where putting up the statues was erasing history, right? There's it absolutely was. <laughs> there were a lot of other people that were alive and doing good during those periods, and you're, you're putting the focus on certain acts by, by certain people and ignoring all of their other bad acts and ignoring the, the entire rest of society. So, you know, I, I think we have to understand why those statues were put up, that those statues weren't put up for the most part right after the Civil War ended to, to uh, respect military service, but rather put up during the Civil Rights era uh, as as a message to the populations that you know they were going to continue to fight for their concept of of uh, what a a white supremacist society uh, should hold val value to. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, Maria says uh, consistent policing that's not happening when the police are turning away and not seeing anything or purposely encouraging violence in the crowds of peaceful protesters. She's probably talking about the time who was that kid, uh, whatever that kid's name yeah. is, Kyle. and uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, yeah, yeah, Rittenhouse, whatever, uh, giving out waters and stuff like that. That, that type of behavior, that right, and, and you know, I, I think it's important. I, I, I want to see the police handing out water to protesters. I just want to see him doing that uh, to the, the Black Lives Matter protesters as well, <laughs> right? You know, that, that the police should be there to make sure that the that people are healthy and, and able to express themselves without harm. Uh, the problem is, you know, again, here you had, you know, in, in my view of that little video snippet where you see the police giving them water, my concern is more that the police say, so you guys are protecting this shopping center? And they say, yes. It's like, okay, the next thing should have been, let me see your security guard licenses. And of course they couldn't have got one for, for, Kyle, for Kyle Rittenhouse because he lived out of state and he was a minor. So he wasn't even eligible to be a security guard. How is he an armed security guard? He's not even eligible to, to open carry a rifle. How could he be an armed security guard, right? But again, it's abandoning those laws in the name of law and order that creates the dangerous situation that, that allows something like that to happen. Um, and I think it's a matter of enforcing the law equally for everyone. And you know, when we see, like in Portland, where these far-right groups come into town, commit mayhem, no police to be seen, or certainly no police intervention. Then they leave, and the police come out and riot here and attack the, the residents, who anti-racist residents who had come out to oppose the far-right groups. Uh, that, that it does real damage to society. And I don't think it was surprising to see the level of violence increase, because if the police aren't going to protect us, we're going to have to have our own gunmen to protect us from the far right gunmen. So now you have guns on both sides. That's not going to end nicely in most situations. 
Absolutely. Uh, let's see. Lavanda says all those behaviors are clinically considered antisocial, uh, which literally means against social norms. Uh, she, uh, so basically, we have a bunch of antisocial personality disorder folks walking around. Yikes. <laughs> um, yeah, you thought, and this is just goes to the, to the mental right. mental health argument there. Um, so again, there were certainly a lot of antisocial people who, who were in that movement, but the people I was worried about, and those are the type of people who tended to be a problem for state and local law enforcement, you know, getting in trouble on the streets, uh, getting in street fights, that kind of thing. But you have to understand in this movement too, the people I was worried about as an FBI agent were not the ones who had mental illness problems. They were the ones who were very effective in organizing, very effective in manufacturing weapons, in, in engaging in higher level conspiracies that could end up uh, in real harm. I, you know, I, I mean, um, they, and again, it, it's easy because of the way we talk about this in our society to treat this as some fringe element and not recognize that it has much deeper roots in the rest of our society, right? I mean, it's, it's not a mistake that, uh, you know, here, whatever it is, 50 years, 60 years after the Civil Rights Act that uh, law enforcement agencies are still predominantly white, that our Congress and, and uh, state legislatures are often disproportionately white that our officer corps in the military is disproportionately white and that our prisons are disproportionately black and brown, right? This is part of a, a, the structural racism that exists in our society. And until we understand how these white supremacist ideologies from our history influenced our laws and institutions that continue to uh, uh, produce these outcomes, even without any overt racist being involved in that, right? If, uh, you know, going back to the era of cocaine, that if you used powder, powdered cocaine in the 1990s and early aughts, you, know, that you would get sentenced to a certain amount of time. If you used crack cocaine, you would get sentenced to, at times, a hundred times more years in jail. Well, that was, made no sense from any kind of pharmacological stance. It was that powder cocaine was popular in white areas and crack cocaine was popular in non-white areas. And, and, you know, understanding how that white supremacy is still prevalent in our society, I think challenges the, the idea that it's just mentally ill people, that unfortunately there are a lot of very sophisticated people who still uh, hold these ideologies. Whether they would ever show up to a Klan rally is a completely different question. Right, right, right. Um, just a couple more questions and I'm gonna let you go. Uh, what's your thoughts about the Black Lives Matter, Antifa? Um, what's your thoughts about that? Are really terrorist organizations, terrorist thoughts? Uh, <laughs> Are they no. infiltrating it, police departments? <laughs> yeah, no, and if you look at the protests and there are a number of, of statistics out there, you know, some saying between 90 and 99% of the, the protests that have uh, come since the George Floyd killing uh, have been entirely peaceful. So, you know, the, the, I, I believe these are, are movements that are challenging our system in, in uh, a way that, that's 
necessary and appropriate. Um, you know, this whole concept of Antifa, and I think they use that shortened version uh, to escape what it actually is, which is anti-fascism. And, you know, to, to the point that my work against neo-Nazis in the 90s as an FBI agent would be considered anti-fascist work, right? That, that you know, we have to understand that this is, is a, it's conceptual, it's not an organization, so it couldn't be a territory. It's like feminism, right? You know, feminism is a concept and people do things that they think advances uh, the cause of, of feminism. It could be you know, completely benign activities all the way to something that's socially inappropriate. So, you know, certainly you, there would be people who engaged in activities that they said were anti-fascist that were uh, criminal acts, but you know the idea that there's some nationwide conspiracy, I think, has uh, no basis in reality. And I think we're seeing that that the arrests that we see at the protests tend to be local people, uh, tend to be nonviolent offenses, you know, uh, with again tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, people involved in these protests, even with. President Trump demanding that the Justice Department prosecute Antifa. Uh, we see only a couple of hundred cases and mostly uh, not very serious charges. So uh, I think law enforcement, unfortunately, has bought into that narrative in ways that are uh, problematic, right? That, that you have, uh, for example, there were some leaked documents that showed uh, a law enforcement intelligence fusion center in Maine had picked up uh, this story from social media about Antifa funding itself through Bitcoin that they put in a law enforcement intelligence product that went out, got repeated in an FBI intelligence product, turned out originated from a white supremacist website, right? The same with um, uh, Antifa starting fires in the Pacific Northwest where uh, uh, these, you know, that that set not just law enforcement out looking for these imaginary actors, but even other armed citizens, which again could create more problems than it solves, all because we're chasing this fantasy that that's mostly disinformation um, and not really helping to to solve any real problems. Give us some good news. What can we do to uh, stop this? Whether it's civilians, whether it's law enforcement, the higher hierarchy, legislatures, uh, FBI agents, government. What can we do to, to stop this going forward? So, so the good news is that law enforcement does have plenty of authority to address this, and uh, there is a, a a long history of uh, how law enforcement has been effective in uh, preventing this type of violence. So there's a research basis for these law enforcement officers to go to rather than following these social media posts by some unknown actors to really understand uh, the, the concerns that are being brought by the public. Um, and I think that policymakers, uh, particularly in Washington, D.C. and Congress, are very serious about understanding and addressing this problem. There have been a number of hearings in uh, the Committee on Oversight and Reform, the Homeland Security and Judiciary Committees, uh, trying to force the federal government to look at this problem more objectively and address it more effectively. So there does seem to be uh, a turn 
among the policymakers. And if we can all use our voices to ensure our, our elected representatives know that this is a concern that we have, uh, that pressure will continue to land on the law enforcement leaders that implement uh, these policies and enforce the law. Mm. Thank you so much for your time. Can you give us a website, any other papers you got coming up, books that you've written, going to write, et cetera? Yeah. Uh, so the two books that I've written are Thinking Like a Terrorist, uh, Insights of an FBI Undercover Agent, and uh, Disrupt, Discredit, and Divide, How the New FBI Damages Democracy. Um, I currently have uh, a webinar series that I'm doing with uh, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, United Chinese Americans, and uh, APA Justice, and APAPA, uh, which is looking at the Justice Department's uh, racial profiling of Chinese and Asian Americans as part of what it calls its China Initiative, looking at, uh, they argue, looking at ec economic espionage, but really what we see is, is a criminalizing of Chinese scientists in a way that's uh, highly problematic and very similar to the way they targeted Muslim Americans after 9-11. Um, so, this administration even has a virus named that one, right? Right, exactly. And brennanshatter.org is where my written products end up. Very good. You got a lot of product out there. I'm still trying to get through it. I think I downloaded, I think, Divide, what name of the book? Divide something. Disrupt, discredit, and divide. Disrupt, discredit, and divide. I'm pretty sure I downloaded that book and I'm going to. Well, I'm so happy to come back uh, whenever you'll have me back. In, uh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I definitely, I, I like to read everybody's book. I'm kind of a glutton for punishment like that. And I like, yeah, to, me too. You know, I like to stay informed. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. I want to say thank you to everyone else, uh, to Maria, to the questions, uh, to Chris, who says, uh, great guest, thank you. And my fiance, who is a hairdresser, says your beard is very pretty. Coming from a hair, coming from a hairdresser, I take that as a very good compliment. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, Darren, my name, man, D-Nice. Darren, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, great content. And Trey Allen says, thank you. Thank you to you. Uh, I really, really appreciate him. Definitely going to uh, look forward to having you back on. Keep up the good work. Keep us informed. And uh, hopefully we can we can stop having these conversations one day when right. people get their act together, you know? Yeah. It's really, really sad. So, um, but, uh, you know, the election's tomorrow. So it's, we, right. we just have to kind of keep our fingers crossed about something, you know, that everything works out. And, we don't have total anarchy on Wednesday, you know. So, yeah. So, uh, so I don't have a, I do not have a show for next next Monday. It's supposed to be on vacation, but the stupid COVID uh, is interrupting that. But I think next Wednesday we're gonna have uh, our another messy entanglements. That's our kind of a relationship type of show. So we're gonna do that next Wednesday. So no show next Monday. So thank you to all to everyone, and uh, we'll see you guys again. Love and peace. Thank you.